2 Samuel 14. Turn that down a little bit. 2 Samuel 14. What happens when we allow interpersonal conflict to go unresolved? I'm sure we all know people who are especially good at leaving problems unresolved. Maybe if we ignore them, they'll go away type idea. I certainly uh, have some extended family that are good at bottling up their anger in a bad way where they'll have a conflict several years, decades ago, uh, family disagreement and led to a family um, argument, explosion of some kind, relationally, and that conflict was never resolved, and there was no forgiveness, there's no conclusion of the matter, and so that sinful anger smoldered in, in their minds and turned into a burning resentment that lasted for years, so that whenever there are family ga- gatherings, there's, only, there's always at least one person who doesn't show up for some reason or another. Or when they do show up, they, they can't stand to talk to another person. When interpersonal conflict goes unresolved, it, it often leads to greater problems. Maybe you know some of the estrangement that comes from unresolved conflict. And leaving conflicts unresolved is not inherently sinful. We can righteously cover over sin if it's something that that has been dealt with and repented of. But the sin comes when we're in a position to deal with the conflict in ourselves or in others and we fail to act because of passivity or fear of further conflict. And David is in that exact position. He holds the key to resolve the conflict between Absalom, his son, and Israel. But instead of, of, of going for it on fourth down, so to speak, he punts. He punts away his responsibility, hoping that maybe the conflict will just automatically take care of itself. And he's put himself in a dangerous spot and has actually put his family in a spot where this conflict could create greater problems which is exactly what happens. Let me remind you of where we are by giving you some background. David has stolen Bathsheba from a poor soldier in order that she can be his wife. He has killed the poor soldier as a part of the cover-up. And after a year, he's confronted about his sin and he repents. But the consequences of his sins do not go away. They are long-lasting. God promised that there would be war in his family. And for him personally, his sin has become an embarrassment to him. And this compels him to, when he has to step up and make a decision and and correct or challenge someone with their sin, he instead is passive. Amnon, his oldest son, violates his daughter, David's daughter, Tamar, in a selfish act of rape. But instead of confronting Amnon and enacting justice on Amnon, David gets angry in chapter 13 but does nothing. Maybe David knows what Amnon feels like. Maybe he knows that Amnon is going to respond, you know, what about you, Dad? What about what you did with Bathsheba? What makes what I did any different than what you did? You wanted something, you took it. I wanted something, I took it. And so because David delays in acting, Absalom, Tamar's 
full brother takes out vengeance on him by murdering Amnon in cold blood. Absalom knows that this sin will not go unnoticed, and so he hides out at his grandfather's house north of Israel in the land of Syria. And he's been there for three years, and this conflict has gone on unresolved for all that time, and this is where we pick up the story in chapter 14. So let me begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read through part of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king! The king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly, I am a widow, for my husband is dead. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them, so the one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant, and they, they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And destroy the air also. Thus, they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, O my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me in my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you any more. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy, otherwise they will destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. The woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking these, this word, the king is as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring back his banished one. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now the reason I have come to speak this word to my lord the king is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, Let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my lord the king be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. David has not resolved the conflict between Absalom and Israel. Absalom has killed his brother and hasn't received any repercussions from it. And so what's going to happen to him? If you leave this problem alone, we basically have delayed justice. And delayed justice often creates larger problems. Joab recognizes that. We can't just leave this conflict unresolved. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to explode. So Joab starts to recognize in verse 1 
that David's heart is inclined towards Absalom. He wants to re- reconcile with him. Apparently, Joab is concerned about the kingly line. He's concerned about the good favor of the kingly line in Israel. And so, he wants to see David's family continue. And he also recognizes something about David. He's been with David long enough, his uncle. So now, he sees that he wants to restore Absalom. But how can he do it? How can he restore Absalom? How can David, how can Joab get David to understand that, that this needs to happen? There's all sorts of tensions. I mean, what, what are people going to think of David if he acquits a murderer? And so Joab steps in to bring about reconciliation. And the strategy is that, that he will hire this woman to, to be an actress for him. She'll come and pretend to be a widow and tell this long story about her son and how he's been killed and, and how there's only one person left to carry on their family line. And if David understands the story rightly, he'll recognize that, that there's more to the story than cold justice. There needs to be an element of mercy with this woman. That's exactly what David sees. And when he sees that, he recognizes the point for himself, that he needs to go and reconcile with his son, Absalom. Tekoa is a city about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. It's in the nation of Israel, so they, they would have had the opportunity to come to the king with their challenges. And here, it's a, it's a legal challenge, effectively, because the people want to destroy her son. Now, this is all made up, but, but this is the claim that she's making. So that's Joab's plot in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 11, we say David's response to the conflict. The woman comes with widow's clothes on and says, See, my husband's dead, so I'm a widow. And I had two sons. Two sons were fighting. One died. And now my clan, my family, wants to kill the survivor in verse 7. And the point of this is important for David to see because if... Her other son is killed. She's left without an heir. Her husband has no heir. And the inheritance that belonged to her husband doesn't pass off to the wife. Like in our day, that's what would happen, right? It would go to the wife. But in their day, the the inheritance would go back to the brother of the deceased, the, the, the husband who had died. If there are no sons to carry on the family line, then then the widow is left hung out to dry effectively. And so that's why she says, notice at the end of verse 7, if they kill him, thus they will extinguish my coal which is left. They will extinguish my coal. There's only one burning ember left, David, and it's my son, and he's in deep trouble. He's on the brink of being extinguished by my people, by my family. He's my only hope. This ember cannot be snuffed out or else I will be destitute. Do you see my desperate situation? You see, her family wants cold justice. And from their perspective, they have the right to charge her son with murder and to to carry out capital punishment on him. That is, through through David and and through the um, monarchy or the the, um, theocracy, I should say that was was there. That David would have the right to carry out that on their behalf. 
But what she wants him to see, what she wants David the king to see, is that, that there ought to be more than just cold justice here at stake. There ought to be some mercy shown to her and her son because of her situation. So David responds in verse 8. He says, Go to your house, I'll give you orders concerning you. In other words, thank you for the information. I'm going to get back to you. And she responds in verse 9, No, that's not good enough. I need an answer now. You don't understand how critical this is. And so David responds with an answer in verses 10 and 11. He says at the end of verse 10, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. So, no one's going to touch your son. At the end of verse 11, he says, As the Lord lives, so he... He makes an oath before the Lord. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now up until this point, David doesn't know that the story is all made up and is directed at him. And so he makes a judgment call. Part of his responsibility as king was to be judge as well. But then in verses 12 through 17, he's exposed. The woman asks permission to speak freely in verse 12. This was unusual. And when she is given permission to speak, she first accuses him of cold, merciless justice in verses 13 and 14. And then second, she reminds David why she came. So first, she accuses David in verses 13 and 14. She effectively says, without saying the same words as Nathan, you are the man. You are like the family who want to coldly Put my son to death. In the kindest way she knows how, she, she pierces David with the truth about his own situation, saying, Are you not like the people who want to perform cold, merciless justice on my son? In other words, David, you are doing the same thing to your own son. He is the banished one. He is the burning ember. Absalom was, was wrong in what he did, just like the son was. But isn't there more to the story than just cold justice? And what she wants him to see in verse 14 is that if David delays injustice with his son, or if he doesn't reconcile with his son by restoring and forgiving him, then the people of Israel will be like she, the widow, they will be like she is. They will be snuffed out. Because Absalom, in a sense, is, is, is part of the extension of David's line. The continuation of David's line. And she says, if you act this way to Absalom and leave this unresolved, it's going to create a greater problem and it could basically snuff out the kingly line. And who's going to be the one mourning after that's done? You know, in her story, it was, it was she, the, the, uh, the uh, widow, the one without an heir. But in David's story, who would it be? It would be the people. Notice verse four, or 14, excuse me, verse 14. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. So we're going to be like water poured out in the ground. What happens when water gets poured out into the ground? 
Can you collect it back up again? I mean, think of it in the desert, right? Where you have the, the cracks in the ground. Once you pour that water out, it's gone. There's no recovering it. That's what we as the people of Israel are going to be like if you don't restore Absalom. See, the people all want him restored. And Joab knows that David wants him restored. But David's the one who's blocking it from happening. In verses 15 and 17, the 15 through 17, the woman reminds David why she came. This is kind of a strange thing to do. She actually goes back to her contrived story that Joab made up. And she, she tries to make it look like this is the real reason I came. So first she tells the story. And then in verses 13 and 14, she says, you are the man. And then she goes back. And, and by the way, can you just st- still consider my story? Consider what's going on with me? Can you still make sure you protect, uh, protect me and, and my son? Again, the reason that we know that this story is made up is because of verse 2. Remember, Joab said, pretend to be like a mourner. And verse 19 um, also says that, that Joab put these words in her mouth. So, delayed justice often creates larger problems. This is what Joab wanted David to see through the woman of Tekoa. And let's see how David responds now that he has been exposed as the one who has delayed justice with his own son. In verses 18 through 33, we see that delayed justice inflames anger in the offender. Delayed justice inflames anger in the offender. I think this is the the point of the entire chapter. This is the main point. But we see it most clearly here in verses 18 through 33. First, he sends for Absalom, but he delays justice even more. Now, we would think, he comes to his senses, sends for Absalom, come on back, son, you're welcome home. But instead, he delays justice even more and and actually puts him out a little bit. Look at verse 18. We'll read this section. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king please speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman replied, As your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant in order to change the appearance of things Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. And then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. O my Lord the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. David recognizes who's behind the story when, after she says, You are the man, effectively. Was Joab behind this? Yes, he was the one. And the reason he knew that is because who else is going to know all that was going on in David's heart? Who, Who else is going to know the circumstances that, that led up to this situation. And so David says to Joab in verse 21, Bring Absalom to me. And when Joab hears those words, he knows that he's found favor in the sight of David because he knows that David has every right to remove him as military commander. 
and carry out judgment on him for deceiving him. But instead he says, you know what, Joab, you're right. I do need to be restored to my son. So bring him to me. So Joab uh, goes to Gesher where Absalom's grandfather lived and where Absalom was living for three years. Absalom comes back. But there's one condition in verses 23 and 24. David says in verse 24, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So here's the opportunity for David, now that he sees what he's done, that he has been cold and mercilessly just in this situation. He hasn't shown any mercy. Now that he's seen it, this is his opportunity to embrace his son, to forgive his son, to deal with the consequences of the sin, to, to, to carry out punishment where necessary. But instead, he says, no, don't. he can come back here, but he cannot see my face. And so David knows he needs to show mercy to his son. He knows he needs to address the sin that has been committed. But instead, he takes the passive route. He abdicates his responsibility. He allows him to return, but he won't meet with him. So he kind of puts him in a holding cell, almost as a further punishment, a delayed justice even more. And we could say, well, maybe David's being merciful here. Right? He didn't actually carry out the justice that Absalom deserved in murdering his brother. But the reality is, as we'll see in the rest of the text, is that David did not forgive him either. He didn't address the situation. And as a result, in verses 25 to 33, we see that David avoids justice and further intensifies the problem. If we delay injustice, if we allow unresolved conflict to go on for year after year after year, it's going to create greater problem. It doesn't just go away. We've already been introduced to Absalom, but he's about to become one of the central figures in the narrative for the next several chapters. And so the author pauses in verses 25 through 27 to describe him for us. Verse 25, Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. To Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So we're told in verse 25 that he was a beautiful man. He was... He, he was without blemish from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no, there was no blemish on him, no defect. And, and most striking of all was his thick, long hair that he would cut once a year in verse 26. And when he cut it, it weighed 200 shekels, which is about three to five pounds. People knew him for his looks and revered him in that way. In verse 27, we learn that he has three sons and one daughter, and he named one of his daughters after his sister, Tamar. And she, too, was beautiful like her father. And after describing Absalom, the author returns to the story in verses 28 to 33. Verse 28, Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send, to send him to the king so that he would not come to him, or but he would not come to him. So he sent again a second time, but he still would not come. And therefore he said to his servants, See Joab's field? It's next to mine. And he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. 
So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house, and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king, to say, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So Absalom was estranged from Israel for three years with his grandfather, then restored partially by David back to Jerusalem, but kind of secluded for two more years. And still, for five years, he hasn't met with his king his father, about this murder. And so in verse 29, Absalom is the one who is the initiator, isn't he? He's the one who's asking for the meeting. But he gets no response from Joab. And so Absalom decides to make his request a little bit more urgent. He sets Joab's barley field on fire. And it gets his attention. Joab responds to his request. What is his request? Let me see the king. I want to see the king at the end of verse 32. And then notice what he says there. Now therefore let me see the king's face and if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So he says, let me see him. If I've sinned, then he can judge me. But if not, let me be restored. Don't leave me in limbo. Now what's critical about what Absalom says, because you might want to say, okay, David's the one that needs to be blamed in this chapter, but there's plenty of blame to go around. Joab lied. Women of Tekoa went along with it. David didn't fully restore Absalom. Absalom, however, notice, is not fully repentant. He's not repentant at all. Notice what he says, if there is iniquity in me. Can I pause the story there and just say that that's what false repentance looks like? It's wanting all the benefits of restoration without owning up to the sin, without accepting the consequences of sin. If I've done something, right? It's, it's the, the empty apology that you've probably received before. You know, if I offended you, I'm really sorry. Well, did you offend me or not? Because why are you even saying that? If I've sinned, well, have you, Absalom? Have you sinned? Was it right for you to kill your brother or was it wrong? This is a huge difference between how he, Absalom, responded and how David responded to his sin when it was exposed to him. David didn't say, God, if I have sinned against you, then please forgive me. He said, God, I have sinned against you. It is against you and against you only have I sinned. Absalom, if if I've done anything wrong, and I don't think I have. Do you know why? Because he deserved to die. I think in Absalom's mind, he had justified the killing and had reasoned that, well, my father didn't take care of it legally. Right? He has the authority as the king, of the, as the king to take care of this rape that Amnon committed. He didn't take care of it. He was too chicken to do it. And so I did it. I did what my father was supposed to do. You know, there's some truth in that. 
David did have a responsibility, but that doesn't give Absalom the right to take justice into his own hand and murder his brother in cold blood. This is not repentance. He doesn't want to experience any consequences of the sin. He simply wants to be restored. Well, let's back to the story because David, in verse 33, avoids justice. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. And thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. We might look at this and say, well, there you go. That's restoration, isn't it? But I would suggest to you that it's not. Because there's still the conflict that has gone unresolved. No one has said anything about the murder of Amnon. True reconciliation is more than just a kiss on the cheek. True reconciliation involves the acknowledgement of truth and then taking the proper steps to expose the sin and bring repentance. Absalom's not restored to David, and David is certainly not over the sin of Absalom. And with this kiss... What David is doing is he's actually allowing the sin to continue to go on unpunished, unpunished, unresolved, unrepented. He's not challenging Absalom with a sin. Absalom, what you did was a sin against God. What I did in not doing anything was wrong. I admit that. But what you did was an offense against God and against the law of Moses. There are five uh, things you need to see tonight. First, three principles to consider and then two applications. First, my inaction is a kind of action. We might think, well, I didn't do anything. So what's wrong with that? But inaction is actually a form of action, isn't it? For David, it's a sin for him to do nothing. He didn't respond when Amnon raped his sister. He didn't respond when Absalom killed Amnon. David abdicated his responsibility. He did nothing. And here you have David constantly stuck between doing something and doing nothing. And he chooses nothing. It's the passive route. Let me just try to show you this with an example. Let's say that I ask you and your family to go, go to lunch with me and you respond, well, let me think about that. And you do that in the moment because you want to save face. You really don't want to go to lunch with me. You have no intention of getting back with me. And yet, you technically haven't told me no and you haven't told me yes. We could say, well, answering no or answering yes, that would be a form of action. So I'll just say, let me get back to you. But really, in saying getting, let me get back to you, we're actually not acting. And in our inaction, we're acting, aren't we? And in this case, David's inaction is not just an annoyance for someone who wants his company, his son. For David, he is supposed to be operating in a place where he is representing God for the nation. 
And so his inaction is actually a sin. It's actually a positive denial of what God has commanded him to do. David was indecisive, inactive, we could say, with Amnon, not carrying out the law of Moses on him. David was indecisive, inactive with Absalom, not carrying out the law of Moses on him. David was indecisive with Absalom again when he returned by not meeting with him. And then another time, when he actually does meet with him, he meets him with a kiss, but still does not handle the unresolved conflict. We need to recognize that our inaction is actually a form of action. Secondly, my inaction intensifies unresolved conflict. Even if we bear some responsibility because we fail to act, even if we bear some responsibility because they're now experiencing some of the consequences of our sin, like with David, right? David was part of the reason that Absalom and Amnon sinned was because there was going to be war in his house forever and because David was passive. He recognized what he had done and he knew, he knew how bad that would look to his sons if he tried to approach them on it, challenge them on their sin. But even if that's the case, we must not, when given the opportunity, abdicate our responsibility again and create greater problems. We, we might think, well, you know what? I should have acted way back there and I didn't. But it's too late. It's going to look, I'm, I'm going to look really foolish if I try to act now. Well, actually what we do is as we continue to delay or we, we continue to hold off and carrying out justice with mercy, then we actually create greater problems. And I think David did recognize that he was partially responsible for the sin of Absalom. And so he probably didn't want to confront him with his sin. He didn't want to call him to repentance. But that's exactly what Absalom needed. That was the best thing for Absalom. It may have been the most difficult thing to do but it was what he needed most. Maybe he knew that Absalom would point out his own sin. Well, you know, when you had somebody in your way who could have ruined you, what did you do? You killed him. Uriah. Right, Dad? That's what you did. So what's the difference between what I did and what you did? In fact, if, if we're going to look at things honestly, Dad... Who is more justified in our killings? Who's more justified, me or you? You did it because you wanted to cover up your sin. I did it in order to enact justice, at least in his own mind. It was, it was still wrong. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how Absalom's going to respond. What does matter is that David has a responsibility to enact justice to, to challenge his son with his sin. And he failed. So, my inaction intensifies greater, greater conflict. But I hope you recognize that, that inaction is not always a bad thing. Because God's inaction is actually an expression of mercy. And aren't you thankful that God was not coldly just with you? Aren't you thankful that God did not look at your sin as a black and white issue? 
but instead considered you as a person, someone made in his image and said, you know what? Yes, they have sinned against me. And so he, he poured out mercy. Mercy triumphed over judgment. Now, it wasn't that he was unjust in saving you and me. Romans 3 is clear about that. He's actually just and the justifier of the one who is ungodly. So praise God that in our salvation, he can still be just while addressing our sin. But what I'm trying to point out is that God had every right to enact his justice on us while we were yet sinners. But instead, he looked on us with pity and mercy, and instead of allowing us to be left to our own devices, he granted a way for us to be restored to him. This should have been David. Address the sin, yes. Show mercy, absolutely. But don't ignore it. Don't delay restoration. For David, it was a formality, but not a reality. Welcomes him back with a kiss, but never addresses his sin. Two applications to consider. Number one, don't be paralyzed by the weight of your former repented sin. Okay, let me just qualify that. Don't be paralyzed by the weight of your former repented sin. The truth is is that our past sin can be paralyzing to us, can't it? That our past sin can loom over us like a rain cloud and we're afraid to do anything or say anything. Suppose you have a husband who's been exposed for his immoral choices and has since repented. But when he sees his son who is making some lesser immoral choices, he's unwilling to confront him because he knows that his son knows about his former sins. Or a boss who's been verbally abusive to his employee in the past has not repented. Or I should say he has now repented. He sought forgiveness. The sin is behind him. The consequences have been, have been experienced. But now, when this boss sees some abusive behavior in his employees, he's unwilling to say anything to him because you know he, he knows that he's been abusive before and he might say something. How about a mom who neglects her responsibility to care for the needs of her family and then recognizes her weakness and turns from that sin but then sees the same sorts of sins in her children but is unwilling to call them out for fear of being contradicted? Can I just say that that those kinds of feelings are legitimate feelings? But at the same time, they do not excuse us from acting when someone needs to be confronted with their sins. And what I'm talking about is particularly when we have turned from that sin, that sin can still loom over us and we don't want to act because then they might bring that, they might dig that old sin back up and I'll look foolish. So can I say to you tonight, don't allow your former sin to paralyze you from doing the right thing now. If you have confessed and forsaken that sin, then go on with life. Fulfill your responsibility to challenge someone else with their sin. Don't use that as a crutch the rest of your life to say, I can't do anything for God. Or I can't do anything to God with regard to this specific sin. 
because I've sinned too big in that way. Instead, we need to, here's the final application, do the right thing now. The best time to do the right thing is now. Don't delay anymore. In chapter 11, David could have avoided, uh, he could have avoided much disaster if he had obeyed God and repented of his sin any sooner than he did. If he had repented before he killed Uriah, if he repented before he committed adultery, before he called her to his house, his palace, the best time for David to respond with the right thing, by doing the right thing, was then, no matter what water was under the bridge. The point is that no matter how many bad choices I make, the best time to repent is right now. Is that true? And for us, we need to act. We need to stop being passive and think that these things will just go away. A lot of sin and disaster had passed under the bridge of David's life, but, but he intensified and made things matters worse because he avoided the, result, the resolution of the problem. He was passive. And that's not going to accomplish anything. It doesn't matter what Absalom would have thought about David's sin. It doesn't matter how big of an explosion Absalom would have had. You're doing this now? Three, five years have passed, Dad, and now you're bringing this up? It doesn't matter how Absalom would have responded. David needed to do the right thing. He needed to do the right thing for the sake of himself, for the sake of Absalom. It was actually the most loving thing he could have done for Absalom and for the sake of the nation. But instead, he abdicated his responsibility once again. And what's going to happen, as we're going to see unfold over the next couple chapters, is this resentment is going to, to just explode. And David's going to have to go into hiding because he was unwilling to initiate uh, justice mixed with mercy on his son when he had the opportunity to do it. thought, just leave it alone. Just let it go. But his delayed justice, and particularly his delayed justice divorced from mercy, inflamed anger in the heart of the offender. And he did great damage to himself and to his family because he was unwilling to act. Let that not be said of us. What kind of sins do you need to repent of right now? What kind of sins do you see in someone else, but you can't address that because you feel like this sin is hanging over you, this previous sin that you've done, or this public sin? Everybody knows about this, so it's going to be brought up again. Is that really the point? Does that really matter in the big scheme of things? Isn't the best thing to do? address the sin if you're in a position to do that and to show mercy absolutely but but hopefully see repentance in that person and help them to learn um, the grace of God when they repent that's not going to remove all the consequences of sin that doesn't mean all the conflicts going away if David did that it could have created just the same kind of conflict that he's going to get that's not the point the point is that we have an opportunity to do the right thing let's do it now Would you pray with me?
Father, we're thankful that your inaction was actually a sign of mercy. You delayed. You were long-suffering with us. When you could have acted with full justice, you saw us as people made in your image and you poured out your mercy. And, and while you did enact justice by taking our sin and putting it on Christ, you also did it uh, along with an overwhelming amount of mercy for us. And so, Lord, we are amazed at your grace. And, and Lord, we tangle such terrible webs in our lives by convincing ourselves that, that our sin is, is too great to overcome or our sin is, is too big for us to, to be able to ever do anything good for the sake of Christ. And we're constantly thinking that that's all people think about and, and that's, that's all that they're going to bring up. They may or may not do that when we have responsibility to challenge a person with their sin speak the truth to them in love but but the point is, is that we cannot continue to delay cold justice we cannot continue to just try to sweep the problem under the rug it will not go away so help us Lord to be good at resolving conflict um, not seeking out problems in every single person and, and digging up dirt on everybody not not that sort of thing but when we're in a position particularly in our own family and in our own church where we have a responsibility to help watch over the souls of the people around us, that we would take the initiative and not be passive once again. Lord, give us the grace to understand and to obey. Use your spirit to help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn in the Majesty Hymn Book to 366? 366. 